Well, good morning, everybody. I um, want to talk to you today about favor. And I want to do that by looking at the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. So if you brought a Bible, would you mind opening it to the book of Esther? And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we should have some black Bibles uh, in the seat rack near you on page 344. Now, if you're getting used to your Bible and you're trying to figure out where Esther is, if you open it about halfway, you'll usually come to the book of Psalms. And what I'd recommend is turn back left past Job, and then you'll come to Esther about 10 chapters long. And we're going to look at that today. And some of you may say, like, why are we studying Esther? A couple things. One, Esther was actually a contemporary of Daniel. We just finished our series on Daniel. And uh, Esther was also one of the exiles from Israel <clears throat> that had been moved to uh, another country, in this case, Persia. And so this probably happened within several decades of Daniel's life. In fact, also, did you know that where Esther lives in Susa, that's modern-day Iran. city still exists. It's called Shush. And um, there's uh, a number of people that live there. And uh, that's also believed to be the burial site of Daniel. Uh, when he would have uh, traveled from Babylon to the Persian Empire moving, they would have moved to Susa most likely. And so, again, historical things. But the other reason we're studying favor today <clears throat> is because if you were to ask me one of the most important subjects in my own life learning how to follow Jesus, it has to be one of these, how we handle favor. So today I want to define it. I want to talk about how we handle it wisely. And let me say one more thing as far as where we're going. In three weeks from today, we're going to resume our study in the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to finish studying the second half of Ephesians. Looking forward to that. But today and next Sunday, I'm going to talk about how to handle favor wisely. Next Sunday, how to handle finances wisely. And then Steve is going to be back two weeks from today to share what he's learned in his sabbatical. And I think uh, all of us are looking forward to hearing uh, about that. So that's where we're headed. But as I listen as a pastor to where a lot of different people are at, this is a subject that affects all of our lives. How we handle favor when we receive a surplus of it or when we lose a lot of it can make a huge difference, not only in our own lives, but also in the people around us and people we may not have even met yet. So as I teach on this today, I'm really conscious of the potential in this room. And we're going to do it by walking through this incredible book called Esther. Her story is amazing. And she actually, uh, as I've studied this, I want to highlight four things that she can teach us about how to handle favor. So first, the definition, if you're following along. Favor, if you're wondering what it means, uh, can mean gifts, kindness, access, esteem, honor. If you're regarded well in someone's eyes, sometimes I've heard people say it this way, you have change in your pocket with that person. You have favor. And some of us have favor in some relationships, sometimes we don't. We've all experienced both. But the idea is, is that favor can mean abilities, talents, privileges, position, power, opportunities, all kinds of things like that. And so all of us have experienced at least some measure of favor. The question is, if you're following along, is how do we grow in favor without being ruined by it? How do we grow in favor without being ruined by it? Interesting verse, Luke 2.52, tells us that Jesus grew not only in wisdom and stature, again, not as God, he came in as God in human flesh, both fully God, fully man. But as a human being, 
He pioneered the way for how we would understand how to live life by showing us how to relate to God in such a way that you could grow in these things. So he grew in wisdom and stature. And then what else did he grow in? In favor with God and man. That implies that you can grow in favor or you can actually not grow with the favor that comes your way. We can actually handle it wisely or we can handle it foolishly. Jesus once told a parable of a rich person that when he had the crop harvest of his life, he said, what should I do now? Huh, I don't have enough room, so I'll build bigger barns and then I'll sit back and say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. For You know, live it up. And he said, that very night, that man died. His soul was required of him. And God said to him, you fool. You fool. You did not handle the favor that came your way wisely. It's all about you. So you and I, that's one of the reasons why we need a message like this is because we live in a country that has placed all kinds of emphasis on material favor, financial favor, which is a good thing. It's also a gift from God. But if we make that more important or we don't handle that wisely, that can be a problem. We also have relational complexities, don't we? Some of us have experienced relational favor or lack of it, how to handle that. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I hope it's helpful to you. But we're going to walk through the big story of Esther. So before we do that, would you pray with me? And then we'll unpack it. Now, God, I thank you for the privilege of being with this uh, church family today. And I want to ask that you'll help us that we would be favor appreciators and also handle your favor wisely. In your name we pray, amen. Interesting thing, by the way, because I I was speaking on this subject this morning, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, people have said to me, I don't have much favor. And I just want to say, well, you may not have as much favor as you want, but you have some favor. And the Bible tells us that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He makes to rain on the just and the unjust. There's God's kind in certain ways to everybody. And the difference is, is that we may just not notice it. We live in a comparison culture. So I don't know if you're like me, but every once in a while I go, they have more favor than I do. Or they have favor that I want. How come I don't have it? And it's very easy, again, to respond that way. So this morning, anyway, I was walking from my car early this morning to the office. And as I was walking across the way there to the building, I... I looked across the street there, across Woodside, and there was this fog that was laying like just a shawl over a lady's shoulder, and just beautiful across the ground there, and it was one of those quiet moments, and I remember thinking to myself, I think this is a moment I just need to stop and receive this weather this day as a gift, so I did. I slowed down just enough, and as I was doing that, then it hit me, wait a second, how can I even see that? God's given me eyes that I can see. And then I'm going to get a chance to walk into a room where there's some other people that are interested in God. Wow. And sometimes we just need to let the favor of kindness of God, those blessings, fall upon us. The, the, The word grace in the Bible means undeserved favor. God gives favor. So let me talk to you about Esther's beauty, Esther's testing, Esther's fasting, and Esther's feasting. And again, there's 10 chapters in uh, Esther, but if I tell you we're going to start in chapter 2, does that make you a little more relieved? (laughs) So here's the deal. Chapter 1 tells us that what went on is that a guy named King Xerxes uh, was there in Persia. He put on a huge banquet 
Now, a lot of times people have told me they love my artwork, and so uh, because of the overwhelming response to my artwork over the years, I decided that it might help if I give you uh, at least an idea about the main characters in Esther, okay? So King Xerxes is the Persian king that opens in chapter 1. That's why I put a crown on his head, you see here? Then there's a guy named Mordecai and Esther who are both Jewish exiles. And as we're going to learn, Mordecai and Esther are biologically cousins, but Mordecai is older than Esther, and Esther's parents actually have died when she was a little girl. So he adopted Esther and adopted her as his own daughter and has helped raise her. We're going to see that. But then in chapter 3, there's a guy named Haman that comes on the scene. I have a Jewish rabbi friend who tells me that whenever they study the book of Esther during the celebration of Purim, that when they do that, whenever they come to the name Haman, all the kids are taught to go, boo, boo, like that kind of thing, because he's the bad guy. Now, after the last service, a guy with a goatee <laughs> said to me, uh, why did you put a goatee on Haman? And he said, fortunately, my wife told me I don't have a mustache, so that can't be me. So anyway... <laughs> The point is, I just wanted you to think about these guys. Now, there is another character that only shows up in the first chapter. Her name's Vashti. She's the queen with King Xerxes. And at the beginning, the 127 provinces of Persia is huge. It's one of the biggest kingdoms that had ever existed up to that time. King Xerxes over all that. He decides to throw a 180-day bash celebration to show his favor to everybody, show it off. And at the top, the height of that, he invites his wife, Vashti to come because he wanted to show her off to all these people because she was beautiful and she doesn't come. She already has a banquet with her own uh, women and she says no and when she says no, Xerxes says go. And when he says go, all his officials say now what? We need another queen since she's been deposed. They say let's do this. Let's have a beauty contest. Out of all 127 provinces gather all the most beautiful women young women in your uh, kingdom and then you pick. You pick the queen. Now, all this sets the stage for Esther. Esther's Jewish name was Hadassah. And again, uh, Esther's her Persian name. And so we're going to pick that up in verse 8. The Bible's already told us that she was one of the women that was being considered in this beauty contest and that she was beautiful, had a lovely figure, and was beautiful. And so notice, let's talk about Esther's beauty, verse 8. By the way, did I tell you that one of the reasons that we're studying favor in Esther is because favor is mentioned at least six times in Esther? So watch in chapter 2 how that word starts to show up. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had the charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. What was their nationality? They were Jewish. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Not only was he her adopted dad, but he also had a place near the palace where he was near the gate, so he had some kind of responsibility and importance that was fairly high up, But it was just, again, something more quieter than some of the higher positions. So, notice what happened. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. You know, sometimes I've told Trish that I think it takes a little longer to get ready 
in the mornings than maybe I'm used to, but I, I, this has totally changed my perspective. Uh, 12 months, wow. This is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, uh, excuse me, so verse uh, 15, let's go on. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what he guy, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now if you're following along, Esther's beauty, here's what I want you to see. I'm going to give you some things about each one of these. But then I'm also going to share with you out to the right in the gray box there at least four things we can learn about how to handle favor wisely that we can learn from Esther. But here, under Esther's beauty, notice that Esther's beauty opens doors with all who meet her, if you're following along. Esther's beauty opens doors with all who meet her. Did you notice that? At least three times. Won their favor, won their favor, won their favor. But here's the second thing I want you to notice, is that Esther's beauty is more than skin deep. Esther's beauty is more than skin deep. How do we see that? We see it in the way that she interacts with people. Have you ever noticed that some people, they have beauty, but you can't stand being around them? Not necessarily because of envy, but because they've become prima donna. Sometimes favor like that can spoil us, it can make us feel entitled, and we start seeing ourselves as better than other people, and that can happen. I've heard of celebrities that if they come to the Prairie Convention Center, three or four pages of demands that they want in their hotel room, they want just this, they have to have their water just like this, flowers here, temperature this. And again, nothing wrong with making requests, but after a while you start to go, I think they're handling favor in like kind of like demanding way. It's making them actually less attractive to be around. So what this shows us is, is that we actually have a part in how we handle favor that can either win favor with more people or it can turn them off. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've experienced it. But notice this. First Peter 3, look at what it says about this. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty that depends on jewelry or beautiful clothes or hair arrangement, but be beautiful inside in your hearts. By the way, let me stop and say, this is not commanding us to try and be as ugly as we possibly can. This is, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying, don't make that the most important thing. Don't get all caught up with that to the place that you neglect your heart, your character. Because if that happens, then no matter how pretty you are, people are going to be able to be, want to be around you. With the lasting charm of a gentle and quiet spirit that is so precious to God. You know, I was attracted to Trish when I first met her because of her appearance, but I was more quickly won over also by her gentle and quiet spirit. I could tell there was something about her character and her heart that was beautiful. And friends, whether you have outward beauty or not, it really doesn't matter. Do you have inner beauty that's being cultivated? Because that's a responsibility that you and I have. We can develop that. Same thing with abilities and talents. If you have an ability, like let's just say, I have the ability maybe to teach the Bible, my responsibility is to keep learning all I can so that each year I can get better at it or I can learn from my mistakes or I can grow. There is those things. Some of you have gifts and abilities and talents and different favor. What are you doing with it? Are we stewarding it? So here's the gray box. You ready for the first lesson that Esther teaches us? I think she would tell us, handle favor responsibly. Handle favor responsibly. 
You know, out to the right, again, of more than skin deep, you'll see 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 as well. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In other words, don't think you're better than other people because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. When you and I begin to walk around with that kind of, you know, someone may say, how do I know if favor's ruining me? Well, let me just ask you. Do you believe you're entitled to favor? Do you believe you deserve favor? Do you talk like I earned it? Do you think like that? Because if it does, that's probably going to be a problem. If you understand that it's a gift, if you understand that God in his kindness gives it to you, that's a different spirit. The same thing is, do you work hard or do you actually coast and slack because of favor? In other words, it's just so easy to just not pay attention to character, but you and I can handle favor responsibly with God's help. Esther did. Second thing I want you to see is Esther's testing. Esther's testing. And uh, what I want you to see is that this is where Haman enters the story. And uh, Esther's testing, if you're following along in the notes, comes with Haman's edict and Mordecai's challenge. Haman's edict and Mordecai's challenge. Let's talk about Haman's edict, chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. Can you tell that he's got a favor climb going on? You see that? Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for, they, for he had told them he was a Jew. This gives us some clue maybe why he didn't bow down because of a conscience issue. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai instead of Haman. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Wow, that's a big jump. I don't like you, and I don't like your people. You're all dead. This is thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout 127 provinces. Wow. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month of the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now, we don't use that calendar system, but this would have been 11 months later. He was casting lots to find out when he would destroy the Jews. There's this implication that he was actually seeking demonic spirits to be led to how to destroy them. But the point is, is that this is going to be 11 months later. He's planning. He's scheming. Now he goes to the king. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. See what he's saying is? I'm a rich guy. I want to do this. I think it's a great idea for you, and I'll even pay you to do it so you don't have to worry about it. king says, you're watching out for me. I like your idea. Keep your money. Go for it. He gives him the power to write an edict that was then sent out on fast horses to the outer reaches of his province, his kingdom, and they would eventually, some of those would take six to eight weeks to eventually get this. Now remember, it's 11 months away, so that would still give plenty of time for everybody to find out and get geared up. 
when Mordecai and all the Jewish people in Susa who lived right there because the edict, would, they would get it that very day. When they read it, they tore their clothes. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they began to wail and they began to weep. They were broken by this. Imagine what Mordecai's thinking. Oh my goodness. My obeying God out of conscience may have actually endangered the lives of my whole people. There's just a lot going on. So he's weeping. The word gets back to Esther in the palace who knows nothing about all this edict that Mordecai is a wreck. So she sends out a servant with clothes and says, what's the problem? Are you doing okay? You know, we tried to comfort him. And he sent back the edict and says, you got to read this. And after reading this, you got to do something. you got to go to the king. Now, do you see how Esther's caught between this? <laughs> Haman decides this. Mordecai challenges her this. And she's, she's at a crossroads. She's got a decision to make. So if you're following along, Esther's testing uh, boils down. Um, she has to consider, am I here for such a time as this? Now let me read verses 10 and following. Then she instructed her servant to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Translated, I'm not sure he's that into me lately. You're asking me to go at a time that may not be as favorable. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You know, he's basically saying, Esther, have you stopped to ask yourself why you are where you are? Is it a coincidence that you are in the palace and have access to the king, even though we're exiles? Have you ever asked yourself why you are where you are right now? You may not even like where you are. You may love where you are. It may be easy. It may be hard. But when you begin to ask yourself that question, it can begin to help you handle favor more wisely. You see, if you're following along, Esther's testing meant that she had to ask this question, is God calling me to risk losing everything he's given me? Is God calling me to risk losing everything he's given me so far? I mean, think about it. Whatever you've acquired, whatever you've collected this far in your life, if God asked you to give it all back, if he asked you to make a decision that might mean losing all of it, would you do it? Jesus said at the very beginning that if anybody wants to follow me, they need to count the cost. They need to actually think this through. Look at Luke 14, 33 in the Living Bible. So no one can become my disciple unless he first sits down and counts his blessings, counts his favor, and then renounces them all for me. In other words, it says, I, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do with all the blessings you've given me. That's big. That's not something you do in five seconds. Look at the Amplified. So then, any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender, claim to, give up, say goodbye to all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Why? Because it's going to get in the way. When you and I begin to hold on to favor more than God, there will be a conflict. Always. We start to love his gifts more than we love him. 
When I was traveling back and forth to seminary a number of years ago, Jeremy, our firstborn, was brand new to life, and he was only a few years old. So when I'd be gone for three and a half days each week, I tried to bring a little gift to him, you know, like one of those little box of Legos. And I noticed when I'd walk in from the garage, after a while, he started catching on to the routine. And guess where his eyes went to every time I walked in from the trip? You guys know, right? My hand. And the Lord just said, Jeff, that's starting to happen to you. You're more interested in what I give you than me. And that's going to get in the way. Make sure you you handle it wisely. Be careful. There was a little boy. Uh, By the way, if you're wondering what the second lesson is for Esther, here it is. You ready? That second gray box, hold favor loosely. Corey Tenboom used to say, hold it loosely so the father doesn't have to pry your fingers back. Hold it loosely. God asked Abraham to lay his son Isaac back on the altar. Isaac was his favor, his future, his everything. Wow. Job lost all ten of his kids in one day. He said, you know, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't think he said that lightly. But he realized that even the greatest favor, even our kids, even our spouses, even the greatest treasure of our life, if we hold on to it too tightly and not loosely, it can get between us. It can be an unwise way to handle favor. We can appreciate favor. We can enjoy favor. We need to value favor. But we need to make sure we hold it loosely. Well, anyway... Here in Illinois, a number of years ago, there was an eight-year-old girl that got a rare form of cancer. She had a rare blood type on top of it, so as she was getting sicker and sicker, they had a hard time finding a blood donor. They finally discovered that actually her six-year-old brother had the same blood type. So the doctor and minister and mom sat down with this little guy, six years old, and said, would you be willing to give your blood to your sister? And he was really thoughtful, and he said, I need to think about it came back to them a little while later, and he said, okay. So the doctor decided in order to help this little guy see the difference he was making by giving his blood, that he'd put his bed next to his sister's bed and hook them up together so he could see the color come back into his sister's face, which he did. But after that happened, he turned and asked the doctor if he could speak with him quietly, and then he whispered, how long will it be before I die? The reason he had to take his time It's because he realized, he thought literally, if I give my blood, then that's all I have to give. And God, what a lesson. Wow. Some of you are at a moment right now where God may be challenging you to lay something on the altar. He may be asking you to hold something more loosely than you want to hold it. It's a battle. And in no way would I ever say, Just do that loosely and lightly. But I do think God's asking us sometimes to hold favor more loosely than we may be. Third thing is Esther's fasting. Esther's fasting. Now we're going to read about what she decides to do when Mordecai gives this challenge. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, what six words here? And if I perish, I perish. 
Out to the right, by the way, of Esther's fasting, you can write these three words, as far, these four words as far as how to handle favor. A third idea, hope in God alone. Hope in God alone, not the favor, hope in God alone. And this is what Esther does. Now, we talked about fasting at the beginning of 2014. If you ever want to go to the website and listen in the archives, you can go back to that. Steve and I both did a message on that. Some of you may know that Jesus never said if you fast, but when you fast. Well, why in the world would you fast? We have so much surplus and bounty of food. Why would I ever need to do that? There are times in our lives where we need to hunger more for God than for food. We need to hunger more for what God can do than what we can do. And we need sometimes to go without that, not because it's wrong to eat, but because he wants us to be more focused and more tuned in. And Esther said, this is a time to hope in God more than food, to hope in God more than any favor he's given me. I'm going to fast. And it was an extreme fast. And I would never encourage anyone with a medical condition to fast like this unless, again, you've checked with your doctor. But this is what she did. She and her maidens and all the Jews in Susa, incredible. They sought God. And what happened? If you're following along, Esther's fasting shows that she hungers for God more than God's favor. She hungers for God more than God's favor. And it also, Esther's fasting leads her to surrender and courageous action. Not only shows she hungers for God more than God's favor, but it leads to surrender and courageous action. You notice that? She basically said, I'm going to fast, and then when I'm done fasting, I'm going to the king. I will do what you ask me to do, but I'm going to prepare my heart first and make sure I'm fully surrendered because I think I'm still holding on to some of this favor, and I need to really think through what this is going to mean. I want to make sure my heart is in it when I go, and I want to make sure that God has access to me in order to show me the stuff he needs to show me because right now I'm having a hard time holding favor loosely, but I want to hope in God alone, and she did, and she took action, courageous action. Just like Daniel took courageous action. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took courageous action. I don't know about you, but sometimes I pray, and then when I'm done, I basically say, God, if you'll just show me what to do, I'll do it. He shows me what to do, and then I go, ah, that's a great idea. But I don't necessarily do it. Jesus in the garden said, Father, if it's possible for me to save all mankind without having to shed my blood on the cross for them, if it's possible not to have to drink that very painful cup, I'd really like that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that on Thursday night and on Friday morning. He walked up the hill and he laid his back on a cross for you and for me. Wow. Courageous action. Amazing. So notice, if you're following along, that there is some things here that are pivot points for us. God's had to teach me this again and again, and I know it's not the last time. Maybe it's something you're in the middle of right now. I'll just tell you a quick story. When I was a pastor out in Iowa, I was just a young guy not knowing what I'm doing. Still don't, but I'm just saying it was so brand new, and I was preaching, and there was a guy that was close to my parents' age who had a son my age, and he was a really neat guy, and uh, he would come up to me. He, wasn't, he had never been real demonstrative from his background. His parents weren't with him, but he was really kind to me, and he'd always go, that was a really helpful message. Thanks so much. He was very affirming. So after that first year of being there, the church said, if you'll go to seminary and finish up here, we'll ordain you. So I started that process. It took me two years, and at the end of the two years, I started noticing that on Sundays, when I'd be preaching, this guy would like do some real dramatic stuff with his wristwatch. He'd go like this. 
okay? I mean, it, like, you couldn't miss it. Like, if I'm looking out, he'd be going like this, okay? Now, I know some of you may have felt the same way, but the point is, is that then he would get up in a huff. And this was, like, so different. I thought, wow, something's happened to the favor I have with this guy. Or something's wrong. So my dad had always taught me, whenever you get sideways with someone, do everything possible within your power to be at peace with people and to at least make things right and learn what you have to learn and admit what you have to admit, just make it right. So I called him and I said, hey, um, would you mind if I came out and talked? And he said, come on out. So I came out and I just said, hey, um, you know, you're, you're my brother in Christ. I need you. Um, I noticed that you seem pretty upset in the services. Is there something you want to tell me, or is there something I need to know? Is there something I need to correct? And he goes, no, he says, I'll just put you this way. Seminary ruined you. He said, you used to be a good preacher. He said, but you're not anymore. And I remember thinking, wow. Um, I said, so is, can you point to anything specific I'm doing that's being, you know, unhelpful, or is there, is, am I acting proud or cocky? Is there, is there something about my personality? You know, we just tried to talk about that, and he goes, no, I, I really can't put my finger on it. I just don't really like listening to you anymore. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not trying, this guy was being totally honest with me, but here's what I learned. I went home and told my wife, I said, here's what I learned today. Favor comes from God. He can give it, and he can take it away. My job is how do I handle when that happens? Now, see, when that happens, you can fall into self-pity and go, poor me. Play the martyr role. I've watched people do that hundreds of times. It's not wise. Or you can say, God, what can I learn from this? Because you gave me the favor I had with him in the first place. What do I do now without it? And he taught me to begin to pray for that man to pray blessing instead of cursing, to pray for his growth, whether he used me or somebody else. Help that guy. Please, you gave me favor for a time, and if you decide to take it away, show me how to handle it more wisely than I would in my self-pitying approach. And that was important. And for the next four and a half years, I never had favor with that guy again until I moved. And that was curious to me. One side note, years later, I was asked to go back and speak there for their 50th anniversary year. And afterwards, this guy came up, and, his, and he was so gracious, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, that really helped me. Thank you. And I remember thinking, God, you didn't owe me that. I could have gone to heaven, and you wouldn't have owed me that. Thank you for letting me experience that with that guy. Some of us will go to heaven without experiencing some reconciliation or some favor return. That may just be the case. Can we live with that? Can we handle it wisely? So here's how the story continues, okay? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, here's what happens. Esther, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. This is a key moment, isn't it? The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. You notice that she has change in her pocket. God's given her favor with the king. He could have blown her off. 
but he, he's very open to her. His spirit is very open to her. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. That's a pretty good deal. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now talk about building suspense. I invited you to this banquet so I can invite you to another one. That's what she does. Now that day, as she leaves, as, uh, as the banquet's over, Haman and the king both walk out. Haman, on his way back to his house, is so puffed up that he's, he's just thinking, I'm a pretty important guy. I just went to the queen's banquet. I was the only. So he goes home and tells his family, I was the only other person besides the king invited. And second of all, as I was leaving, I encountered that Mordecai guy again. Arrgh. I really would like to get rid of him before the edict. So he said, didn't you just tell us you're an important person? Why don't you build a pole as tall as 75 feet high so everybody in the city can see it? And why don't you impale and hang Mordecai on that? In fact, do it right away. He said, that's a great idea. He got carpenters working that very day after the first banquet. So now the plot clots. Chapter 6, look at what happens. Verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. That night! What unbelievable timing. The king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles that record the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, after she won the beauty contest and became the queen, Mordecai was listening at the gate one day near the palace, and he heard two guys plotting to assassinate the king because they had easy access. They could take him out. Mordecai got the word to Esther. Esther reported to King Xerxes. They found out that the plot was, in fact, real, and those guys were taken out. But nothing happened. And I imagine at the time, Mordecai goes, like, where's the favor? I did the right thing. Where's the favor? Sometimes God has bigger plans. Notice what happened. The king, answered, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai and the pole he had set up for him. <laughs> what did the king read that night? Mordecai is a good guy. Remember him. Haman comes in. Mordecai, I want to kill him. Will you help me? And all of a sudden they collide, okay? Verse 5. Before Haman can say anything, notice what happens. The king's attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I don't think he's handled favor very wisely, do you? Verse 7, so he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, 
who sits, on the king's, sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. I imagine what happened next was the king said, oh, by the way, what did you, what did you want to talk to me about? <laughs> it can wait. It can wait. Doesn't have any time. He does all this stuff for Mordecai. You can imagine how humiliating it was to honor someone above himself. He gets back to his family just before the banquet, just in time to tell them what happened. You cannot believe what a bad day I had. They said, your doom is sealed. He goes to, off to the banquet, and now we see it in chapter one, verse, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and, and Haman went to the queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your request that will be given you? What is, what is your petition? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And then she goes on in verse uh, five. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing, Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. When that happened, the king got so ticked off that he goes out to catch his breath for a second. And while he does, Haman realizes he's in deep weeds. He climbs up on the couch to beg for his life to Esther. The king come back king comes back in and he says, can I even step out for a second without you trying to molest my wife? And then one of the servants nearby goes, that's not all, king. He yesterday started building a pole 75 feet high to impale Mordecai, you know, that guy that saved you from the assassination plot? King goes, impale Haman on it. Put him to death on the very thing he built for someone else. Notice what happens in chapter 8. It says this. It says, That same day the king Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Once again, Esther pleads with the king. She says, basically, if I have favor with you, this edict is still out there, and you cannot, you cannot stop the law of the Medes and the Persians. The only way you can is by writing another edict that will give us the power to protect ourselves. He says, done. Sends it out. Again, they had enough time so that on the day that had been appointed for 11 months from the original time of the edict, the Jews were able to protect themselves in every city, and they were delivered. They were saved. So if you're following along in the notes, notice this, that Esther's feasting occurs when her people are saved. This feasting that happened at that time eventually would become a celebration the Jews would practice for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, still practice it today, called Purim, to remember how God delivered them from their enemies even though they were in a foreign land, how he graciously did that. And so she is able to feast with others because of how her people are saved. Wow. If you're wondering how to handle favor, Wisely, here's the fourth one out to the right. Use favor to help others. Use favor to help others. I don't know about you, but I could have written that, that her feasting and celebration was because she had been saved. Friends, I just want to ask you, 
Are you saved? Are you saved? The Bible tells us that all of us have unwisely handled the favor God entrusted to us. All of us have gone our own way. And the Bible says the penalty for that is separation from God forever. But God was not willing to let that go because of his love, but in his justice, he had to deal with our wrongdoing. And so what he did is he sent his one and only son who left the glories and favor of heaven and stepped down into a human body and took on the form of a servant. And he became poor so that you and I might become rich. This is called grace, unmerited favor. And it is the greatest offer of favor you will ever receive. The question is, what have you done with it? What will you do with it? If you are saved, then here's the next question. Do you want other people to be saved? Or is it just about you? Is it just about me? I don't know about you, but if I don't handle favor wisely, I just think about myself. In my early 20s, when Trish and I were first married, I was spending time with a guy named Roger. And he and his wife had become friends. And so Roger was just saying to me one day, he says, you know, I've been learning lately. He says, even though you and I, we don't have much money because we're just newly married and stuff like that. He says, I've been noticing that every once in a while, we'll get a little surplus. He said, it's kind of neat. He meant financial surplus. And he says, whenever that happens, he says, I've realized that one of two things is about to happen. Our car is about to break down. (laughs) Or God is getting ready to show us somebody that might need it. When I heard that, I was cut to the heart. Because I thought, two ways I would say is the car's either about to break down and I get to do something for myself. Which again, God says, enjoy favor, appreciate it. Sometimes I give it to you for you to enjoy. But if that's all you ever think, then you haven't learned how to handle favor wisely and maturely. You've stayed a small-hearted person. When favor comes your way and my way, we have a chance to pass it on. And if you're following along, notice this. That Esther's feasting occurs because she chooses to be a pass-it-on person. She asks the question, God, why have you given me this favor? Is it just for me to enjoy? Or is it for me to pass on? Is there someone that you want me to enjoy it with? Is there someone you want me to give it instead of enjoying it myself? Let someone else know the joy of enjoying it. But God... How can I be a pass-it-on person because of all the favor you've given to me? I know how much it means. Show me how to be a blessing to others. And that leads to this idea that God enriches us, according to 2 Corinthians 9, God enriches us so that we can enrich others. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says God does bless us. He does favor us, but he does it so often so that we can turn around and bless others. And friends, what I want to tell you about being part of a church together This is our calling. Why has God blessed our church family? Why has he been so good to us? I believe it's because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy his favor. But if we stop there, we've missed it. He has blessed us to be a blessing. Now think about this with me. Esther was one person And because she chose to handle favor wisely, by handling it responsibly, holding it loosely, hoping in God alone and helping others, 
her one response had a ripple effect that affected thousands of people. She could have never known. And I wonder to myself, if just you and me and all those of us in this room were to begin to handle favor differently, what might happen in our community and world, in our homes, in our schools, in our jobs? May God teach us how to handle favor wisely. So here's the last question. Lord, what favor can I handle more wisely in my life with you? What favor can I handle more wisely with you? And you just think about this, friends. I don't know what it might be, but I want to ask you to close your Bibles and let's just take a moment to be quiet before God and ask him if there's anything he wants to show us. God, why have you put me where you've put me? And what do you want me to do with a favor you've permitted me to have so graciously? Just take time to think about that for a moment. Sing this with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, Lord, as we walk out of here, as we leave to go to our homes, would you please show us how to handle favor more wisely every day, that we can be a blessing. We bless your name. Amen. There's always someone down front to pray with you if you'd like to.